When speaking about tyranny, most Chinese are reminded of Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of the Qin dynasty, whose oppressive court burned philosophy books and buried Confucian scholars alive. Qin Shi Huang's harsh treatment of his people came from his policy of supporting his rule with all of the resources under heaven. His policy had four main aspects, excessively heavy taxation, wasting human labor for projects designed to glorify him, brutal torture under harsh laws, punishing even the offender's family members and neighbors, and controlling people's minds by burning books and killing scholars. Today, the CCP's violence and abuse are even more severe than those of the tyrannical Qin dynasty. Mao Zedong, the first CCP leader of the People's Republic of China, put it bluntly, saying, What can Emperor Qin Shi Huang brag about? He only killed 460 Confucian scholars, but we killed 46,000 intellectuals. There are people who accuse us of practicing dictatorship like Emperor Qin Shi Huang, and we admit it all. It fits the reality. It is a pity that they did not give us enough credit, so we need to add it ourselves. Let us take a look at China's arduous 55 years under the rule of the CCP. Let us examine how, after seizing power, the CCP utilized the state apparatus to carry out genocide of entire classes of society by using the principle of class struggle, and how the CCP has achieved its reign of terror by means of violent revolution. On October 1, 1949, Mao Zedong declared standing on the rostrum of Tiananmen, that the CCP had seized power through violent revolution. Having suffered several decades of war, the Chinese people celebrated at this moment, thinking that the Chinese nation would move to prosperity thereafter. Throughout history, there have been political groups that committed mass murder in bloody wars in order to acquire power. But after their gaining power, large-scale killings usually came to an end and people could live a normal life of peace and stability. The Chinese people did not expect that for the CCP. Seizing power was only the first step in the 10,000-mile march. What followed was the CCP evil spirit's tight possession of the country and people, manipulating and controlling people so as to maintain power while monopolizing and absorbing the wealth of society. Therefore, from the day that the CCP came to power, it started a series of organized and planned struggles, both internally and externally, such as the class struggle, the path struggle, and the ideological struggle through which to systematically eliminate dissidents in various strata and groups on the one hand and extend the party organization to the smallest unit of society on the other. The CCP not only annihilates people's physical bodies, but also destroys their spirits 
and suppresses all thoughts and beliefs that do not fit with the Communist Party. By forcing the people in the country to become obedient slaves of its tyrannical rule, the CCP attempts to reach its goal of absolute social control. Barely three months after the founding of Communist China, the CCP started a land reform program. Rural residents were classified into different classes and categories, and over 20 million rural inhabitants nationwide were labeled landlords, rich peasants, reactionaries, or bad elements. These new outcasts faced discrimination, humiliation, and loss of all their civil rights. The party slogan, Land to the Tiller, indulged the selfish side of the landless peasants, encouraged them to struggle with the landowners by whatever means, and to disregard the moral implications of their actions. With the goal of eliminating the landlord class during the land reform, nearly 100,000 landlords were killed. In certain areas, the CCP and the peasants killed the landlord's entire families. Even women and children could not escape the murder. Meanwhile, as the land reform extended its reach to remote areas and regions of ethnic minorities, the CCP's organizations also expanded quickly, establishing party committees and branches in every township and village. These local branches worked to pass instructions from the CCP Central Committee and were at the front line of the class struggle. During this period, the CCP launched its first wave of propaganda, declaring, Chairman Mao is the great savior of the people, and that only the CCP can save China. During land reform, the landless farmers got what they wanted through the CCP's policy of reaping without laboring and robbing without concern for the means. Poor peasants felt that they had benefited from following the party. Therefore, they were grateful and accepted the CCP propaganda that the party worked for the interests of the people. But the good days of Land to the Tiller were short-lived. In September of 1951, Mao Zedong proposed the first national meeting on cooperatives. Although field investigation showed that peasants did not have enthusiasm in forming cooperatives, the party branches at various levels of the government, including township, rural town, and village, still promoted the cooperatives as the party's political goal. They imposed a number of practices on the peasants, such as mutual aid groups, primary cooperatives, advanced cooperatives, and people's communes. Using the slogan of criticizing women with bound feet, meaning those who are slow-paced, the CCP drove and pushed year after year, urging peasants to dash into socialism, Xiangqian, 
咱们芳草地这两年的风风雨雨，给大伙擦亮了眼睛。不搞互助合作，就是死路一条啊！咱们贫下中农要按照毛主席的指示组织起来，奔社会主义，这才是一条金光大道啊！By the end of 1952, over 8.3 million cooperatives sprang up in China's rural areas. By the end of 1956, almost all peasants had joined cooperatives. In the cooperative movement, the collective now took the land, livestock, and agricultural tools, which became the property of the collective, and all the benefits the peasants had received during the land reform were taken away. The Communist Party soon started to exercise central control over buying and selling of grain, cotton, and oil, excluding key agricultural products from market exchange. This, in addition to the system of residency registration, led to the peasants' total loss of freedom. Peasants could not leave their commune and brigade, could not go into the cities to work or live, could not buy grain from the state grain shop. And their children could not go to school in the city. The peasants' children could only be peasants. China's rural residency holders became second-class citizens from this time on. During the Great Famine of 1959 to 1961, peasants did not even have the right to enter the city to beg for food, and with their path of escape totally blocked. Tens of millions of peasants died of hunger. This was a frightening tragedy, unprecedented in the history of human civilization. In the recent era of economic reform, while a number of people have become rich. The 900 million peasants only have had their income increased slightly, and their social status improved somewhat in the initial five years after the household contract system replaced people's communes. Due to the CCP price structure that favored industrial commodities over agricultural goods, as well as the heavy tax burden, peasants soon plunged into poverty once again. Data from Xinhua News Agency shows that since 1997, the revenue of the major grain production areas and the income of most rural households have been at a standstill or even declined, while rural local government imposed increasingly heavier taxes and fees. The income gap between the urban and rural population has drastically increased. And economic disparity continues to widen. Peasants who have entered the city as wage laborers receive the lowest pay and are deprived of any welfare benefits their urban counterparts enjoy. Behind the shiny display-style economy are hidden layers of ruthless exploitation of peasants and blatant violation of their survival rights. The CCP relied on the peasants to gain power, 
But today, it is the peasants who sacrifice the most and pay the dearest cost in the Chinese society. The CCP's rural policies have always aimed at maintaining party control instead of representing the peasants and showing concern for their benefit. During reforms in industry and commerce that started in the early 1950s, the CCP claimed that the capitalist class and the working class were different in nature. The former was the exploiting class, while the latter was the non-exploiting and anti-exploiting class. According to this logic, the capitalist class was born to exploit and would not stop doing so until it perished. It could only be eliminated, not reformed. Under such a premise, the CCP used both killing and brainwashing to transform capitalists and merchants. The CCP used the method of supporting the obedient and destroying those who disagreed. If you surrendered your assets to the state and supported the CCP, you were considered just a minor problem among the people. If you disagreed with or complained about the CCP's policy, you would be labeled a reactionary and become the target of the CCP's draconian dictatorship. During the reign of terror that accompanied these reforms, capitalists and business owners all surrendered their assets. Many of them could not bear the humiliation they faced and committed suicide. Chun Yi, then mayor of Shanghai, asked every day, how many paratroopers did we have today? Referring to the number of capitalists who had committed suicide by jumping from the tops of buildings that day. Thus, in only a few years, the CCP completely eliminated private ownership in China. On June 15, Beijing declared While carrying out its land and industrial reform programs, the CCP launched many massive movements, such as the suppression of counter-revolutionaries, thought reform campaigns, cleansing the anti-CCP clique headed by Gao Yang and Rao Shushi, probing Hu Feng's counter-revolutionary group, the Three Anti-Campaign, the Five Anti-Campaign, and the further cleansing of counter-revolutionaries. Fan 
The CCP used these movements to persecute countless innocent people. In every political movement, the CCP fully utilized its control of government resources in conjunction with the party's committees, branches, and sub-branches. Three party members would form a small combat team, infiltrating all villages and neighborhoods. These combat teams were ubiquitous, leaving no stone unturned. This deeply entrenched party control network, inherited from the CCP's network of party branches installed within the army during the war years, has since played a key role in later political movements. Even the workers, named by the CCP as a class that leads all others, could not escape the fate of being fooled and deprived. While promising to protect them in illness, old age and death, the CCP has maintained a system of low wage for workers. Old generation workers have hardly had any health insurance or savings for old age. After the Cultural Revolution, the CCP transferred the economic problems caused by its own policy mistakes onto the workers. In the name of economic reform, the CCP took away all welfare promises to the workers. After the CCP sold out state enterprises one round after another, countless workers lost their jobs. As medical service became commercialized after the government relinquished its responsibility to society, workers dared not visit hospitals when they were ill. After old age care was dumped onto society, old workers who live on their meager retirement income barely have enough money to buy food. In this process of workers' deterioration, however, the CCP leaders at various levels have converted state property into their own. After the bloody transfer of private property to the public in the early years, now we have a similarly bloody transfer of public property into private hands. These two crimes, opposite in nature, have both been committed by the CCP in just 50 years. In 1950, the CCP instructed its local governments to ban all unofficial religious faiths and secret societies, stating that those feudalistic underground groups were mere tools in the hands of landlords, rich farmers, reactionaries, and the special agents of the KMT. In the crackdown that extended to all townships and cities of China, the government dismissed Christian, Catholic, and Taoist and Buddhist organizations, labeling them superstitious. The CCP ordered all members of these churches, temples, and religious societies to register with government agencies and to repent for their involvement. Failure to do so would mean severe punishment. In 1951, the government formally promulgated regulations threatening that those who continued their activities in unofficial religious groups would face a life sentence or the death penalty. 
This movement persecuted a large number of kind-hearted and law-abiding believers in God. The available statistics indicate that the CCP persecuted at least 3 million religious believers and underground group members, some of whom were killed. The CCP searched almost every household across the nation and interrogated its members, even smashing statues of the kitchen god that Chinese peasants traditionally worshipped. The executions reinforced the CCP message that communist ideology was the only legitimate ideology and the only legitimate faith. The concept of patriotic believers soon emerged. The state constitution protected only patriotic believers. The reality was, whatever religion one believed in, there was only one criterion. You had to follow the CCP instructions and you had to acknowledge that the CCP was above all religions. If you were a Christian, the CCP was the god of the Christian god. If you were a Buddhist, the CCP was the master Buddha of the master Buddha. Among Muslims, the CCP was the Allah of the Allah. When it came to the living Buddha in Tibetan Buddhism, the CCP would intervene and itself choose who the living Buddha would be. The CCP left you no choice but to say and do what the CCP demanded you to say and do. All believers were forced to carry out the CCP objectives while upholding their respective faiths in name only. Failing to do so would make one the target of the CCP persecution and dictatorship. Over 20,000 Christians conducted a survey among 560,000 Christians in house churches in 207 cities in 22 provinces in China. They found that, among house church attendees, 130,000 were under government surveillance. By 1957, the CCP had killed over 11,000 religious adherents and arbitrarily arrested and extorted money from many more. By eliminating the landlord class and the capitalist class, and by persecuting large numbers of God-worshipping and law-abiding people, the CCP cleared the way for communism to become the all-encompassing religion of China. In 1956, a group of Hungarian intellectuals formed the Patofi Circle that held debates critical of the government. The group sparked a nationwide revolution in Hungary, which was crushed by Soviet soldiers. Mao Zedong took this Hungarian event as a lesson. In 1957, the CCP used the slogan, letting a hundred flowers blossom and a hundred schools of thought contend and called upon Chinese intellectuals and other people to help the CCP rectify itself. Mao's purpose was to lure out the anti-party elements among the people. In his letter to provincial party chiefs in 1957, 
Mao Zedong revealed his intention of luring the snakes out of their holes by letting them air their views freely. The CCP encouraged people to speak up and promised no reprisals. The party would not grab pigtails, strike with sticks, issue hats, or settle accounts after the autumn, meaning the party would not find fault, make attacks, place labels, or seek to retaliate. Yet soon, the CCP initiated an anti-rightist movement, declaring 550,000 people as rightists, 270,000 lost their jobs, and 230,000 were labeled medium rightists or anti-CCP, anti-socialist elements. Some summarize the CCP political strategy of persecution into four items. Luring the snakes out of their holes, fabricating crimes, sudden attack, and punishment with a single accusation, relentless attack in the name of saving people, and forcing self-criticism and using the most severe labels. What then were the reactionary speeches that had caused so many rightists and anti-communists to be exiled for nearly 30 years in far-flung corners of the nation? The three major reactionary theories, the targets of general and intensive assaults at the time, consisted of a few speeches by Luo Longji, Zhang Bojun, and Chu Anping. Let us take a closer look at their opinions and suggestions. Luo Longji suggested forming a joint commission of the CCP and various democratic parties to investigate the deviations in the three anti-campaign and five anti-campaign and the movements for purging reactionaries. The state council itself often presented something to the political consultative committee and the People's Congress for observations and comments. And Zhang Bojun suggested the political consultative committee and the People's Congress should be included in the decision-making process. Chu Anping suggested that since non-CCP members also had good ideas, self-esteem and a sense of responsibility as well, there was no need to assign a CCP member across the nation as the head of every work unit, big or small, or even for the teams under each work unit. There was also no need that everything, major or minor, had to be done the way CCP members suggested. All three had expressed their willingness to follow the CCP, and none of their suggestions had exceeded the boundaries demarcated by the famous words of writer and critic Lu Xun, My master, your gown has become dirty. Please take it off, and I will wash it for you. These rightists had only expressed docility, submissiveness, and respect. None of the condemned rightists suggested that the CCP should be overthrown. Like Luo Lungzhi, Zhang Bojun, and Chu Anping, all they had offered was constructive criticism. Yet precisely because of these suggestions, tens of thousands of people lost their freedom, and millions of families suffered. What followed were more movements such as confiding to the CCP, digging out the hardliners, the new three anti-campaign, sending intellectuals to the countryside to do hard labor, and catching the rightists who were missed the first time around. Whoever had a disagreement with the leader of the workplace, especially the party secretaries, would be labeled anti-CCP. The CCP would subject the light offenders to constant criticism and send heavy offenders to labor camps or relocate their families to rural areas.
Their children were barred from going to college or joining the army. They couldn't apply for jobs in cities or towns, either. The families would lose their job security and public health benefits. They became lowly members of the peasant rank and outcasts even among second-class citizens. After the persecution of the intellectuals, some scholars developed a two-faced personality. They followed closely the Red Sun, that is, Mao, and became the CCP's court-appointed intellectuals, doing or saying whatever the CCP asked. Some others became aloof and fearful of speaking about political matters. Chinese intellectuals, who have traditionally had a strong sense of responsibility towards the nation, have been silenced, as if Xu Chu entered the Zhao camp. After the anti-rightist movement, China became afraid of the truth. Everyone joined in listening to false words, telling false tales, making up false stories, and avoiding and covering up the truth, using lies and rumors. The Great Leap Forward was a nationwide, collective exercise in lying. The people of the entire nation, under the direction of the CCP evil specter, did many ridiculous things. Both liars and those being lied to were betrayed. In this campaign of lies and ridiculous actions, the CCP implanted its violent evil energy into the spiritual world of the Chinese people. At the time, many people sang songs promoting the Great Leap Forward, with lyrics such as, I am the Great Jade Emperor, I am the Dragon King, I can move mountains and rivers, here I come. New policies were announced every year, such as achieving a grain production of over a thousand bushels per acre, doubling steel production, surpassing Britain in 10 years, and surpassing the United States in 15 years. But the policies always failed. As a result, a grave famine swallowed China and left hunger, death, and destitution all over the land. During the 8th CCP Central Committee meeting, which was held in Lushan in 1959, none of the participants disagreed with General Peng Dehuai's view that the Great Leap Forward, initiated by Mao Zedong, was foolish. However, for delegates at the meeting, supporting Mao's policy or not marked the line between loyalty or betrayal. Expressed another way, it marked the line between life and death. In a story from Chinese history, when Zhao Gao claimed that a deer was a horse, 
He knew the difference between a deer and a horse, but he purposely called a deer a horse to control public opinion and expand his own power. He wanted the people to follow him blindly without daring to oppose. At the 8th CCP Central Committee meeting, as it turned out, Peng Dehuai was forced to sign a resolution condemning and purging himself from the central government. Similarly, in the later years of the Cultural Revolution, even Deng Xiaoping was forced to promise that he would never appeal against the government's decision to remove him from his posts. In 1966, a new wave of violence rolled onto the land of China, and an uncontrollable red terror spread like a monster dragon gone mad, or a wild horse broken from the rain, shaking the mountains and freezing the rivers. Writer Qin Mu described the Cultural Revolution in the following bleak terms. It was truly an unprecedented calamity. The CCP imprisoned millions due to their association with a targeted family member, ended the lives of millions more, shattered families, turned children into hoodlums and villains. Burned books, tore down ancient buildings, and destroyed ancient intellectuals' gravesites committing all kinds of crimes in the name of revolution. Conservative estimates place the number of unnatural deaths during the Cultural Revolution at 7.73 million. People often mistakenly think that the violence and slaughter during the Cultural Revolution happened mostly during the rebel movements, and that it was the Red Guards and rebels who committed the killing. However, thousands of officially published Chinese county annuals indicate that the peak of unnatural deaths during the Cultural Revolution was not in 1966 when the Red Guards controlled most of the government organizations, or in 1967 when the rebels fought among different groups with weapons, but rather in 1968 when various levels of revolutionary committees were established and Mao regained control over the entire country. The violence during the Cultural Revolution did not originate from the extreme behavior of the Red Guards and rebels, but from the policy of the CCP and the regional governments. In August 1966, the Red Guards expelled Beijing residents who had been classified in past movements as landlords, rich farmers, reactionaries, bad elements, and rightists, 
and forced them to the countryside. The available official statistics show that almost 34,000 homes were searched and over 85,000 Beijing residents were expelled from the city and sent back to where their parents had originally come from. Red Guards all over the country followed suit, expelling over 400,000 urban residents to the countryside. Even high-ranking officials, if their parents were landlords, faced exile to the country. In fact, the CCP planned the expulsion campaign even before the Cultural Revolution began. Former Beijing Mayor Peng Jun declared that the residents of Beijing, ideologically, should be as pure as glass or crystals, meaning that all residents with a bad class background would be expelled from the city. In May of 1966, Mao commanded his subordinates to protect the capital. A capital working team was set up, led by Yu Zhanying, Yang Chongwu, and Xie Fuzhi. One of the tasks of this team was to use the police to expel Beijing residents of bad class background. This history helps make clear why the government and police departments did not intervene, but rather supported the Red Guards in searching homes and expelling more than 2% of Beijing residents. The Minister of Public Security, Xie Fuzhi, required the police to not intervene in the Red Guards' actions, but rather to provide advice and information to them. The Red Guards were simply utilized by the party to carry out a planned action. Then, at the end of 1966, the Red Guards were abandoned by the CCP. Many were labeled counter-revolutionaries and imprisoned, and others were sent to the countryside, along with other urban youth, to reform their thoughts through hard labor. The Westtown Red Guard organization, which led the expulsion of city residents, was established under the so-called caring guidance of the CCP leaders. The order to incriminate the Red Guards was also issued after being revised by the Secretary General of the State Council. Following the removal of the Beijing residents of bad class background, the rural areas started another round of persecution of bad class elements. On August 26, 1966, a speech by Xue Fuzhi was passed down to the Daxing police force at their work meeting. Xu ordered the police to assist the Red Guards in searching the homes of the five black classes. The five black classes are landlords, rich peasants, reactionaries, so-called bad elements, and rightists. The police provided information and advice and helped the Red Guards in their raids. The infamous Daxing massacre occurred as a direct result of instructions from the police department. The organizers were the party secretary and the director of the police department, and the killers were mostly militiamen. They did not even spare the children. During the Cultural Revolution, 
many were admitted into the CCP for their so-called good behavior during such slaughters. Statistics from Guangxi province, for example, show the following. More than 9,000 were admitted to the party shortly after they had killed someone. More than 20,000 committed murder after being admitted to the party. And more than 19,000 other party members were involved in killing in one way or another. These figures, from one province alone, show that nearly 50,000 CCP members engaged in killing. During the Cultural Revolution, class theory was also to be applied to beatings. The theory held that the bad deserved it if they were beaten by the good. It was honorable also for a bad person to beat another bad person. It was a misunderstanding if a good person beat another good person. This and more of Mao's theories were spread widely in the rebel movements. Violence and slaughter were widespread following the logic that the class enemies deserved any violence against them. From August 13th to October 7th, 1967, militiamen in Dao County of Hunan Province slaughtered members of the Shanjiang Wind and Thunder Organization and those of the five black classes. The slaughter lasted 66 days and extended to 468 brigades in 36 people's communes across 10 districts, killing more than 4,500 people in over 2,700 households. In the entire prefecture, which consists of 10 counties, a total of 9,093 people were killed, of which 38% were of the five black classes and 44% were their children. The oldest person killed was 78 years old, and the youngest was only 10 days old. This is only one case of violence that occurred in just one small area during the Cultural Revolution. In Inner Mongolia, after the establishment of the Revolutionary Committee in early 1968, the cleansing of class rank and purge of the People's Revolutionary Party resulted in the deaths of more than 350,000 people. In 1968, tens of thousands of people in Guangxi province participated in the mass slaughter of a public faction known as the 422 organization, killing more than 110,000. Those who were directly involved in ordering and carrying out the killing were mostly the military, police, armed militia, and key members of the party and the Communist Youth League. The purpose of the Cultural Revolution was to establish communism as the one and only religion dominating the entire country, controlling not just the state, but also every individual's mind. The Cultural Revolution pushed the CCP and Mao Zedong's cult of personality to a climax. Mao's theory was used to dictate everything and one person's vision had to be embedded in tens of millions of people's minds. The Cultural Revolution, in a way unprecedented and never again to be matched, did not specify what could not be done. Instead, the party emphasized what could be done and how to do it.
anything outside this boundary could not be done or even considered. During the Cultural Revolution, everyone in the country carried out a religious-like ritual. They ask the party for instructions in the morning and report to the party in the evening. They salute Chairman Mao several times a day, wishing him boundless longevity. They repeat morning and evening political prayers every day. Nearly every person who can read has had the experience of having to write self-criticism and thought reports. Mao's quotations such as the following were frequently recited. Fight ferociously against every passing thought of selfishness. Execute the party's command, whether or not you understand it. Even if you do not understand, carry it out anyway, and your understanding should deepen in the process of execution. Only one god was allowed to be worshipped, and that god was Mao. Only one kind of scriptures were allowed to be studied, Mao's teachings. Soon, the god-making process progressed to such a degree that the people could not even buy food in canteens if they did not first recite a quotation or offer a greeting to Mao. When shopping, riding the bus, or even making a phone call, one had to recite one of Mao's quotations, even if it was totally irrelevant. In these rituals of worship, people were either fanatical or cynical, and in either case, they had already come under the control of the communist evil specter. Producing lies, tolerating lies, and relying on lies became a part of daily life for Chinese people. The Cultural Revolution was a period full of bloodshed, killing, grievance, loss of conscience, and the confusion of right and wrong. After the Cultural Revolution, the CCP leadership changed its banners frequently, while the government changed hands six times within 20 years. Private ownership has now returned to China. Disparities in the standards of living between the cities and the rural areas have widened the area of China's landscape lying waste to desert has quickly expanded. River water has been drying up, and drug use and prostitution have increased. All of the crimes the CCP swore to fight are now permitted again. The CCP's political control continues to rely on the Communist Party philosophy of struggle and violence. The CCP's ruthless heart, devious nature, Evil actions and ability to bring ruin to the country has only increased. Under the CCP rule, the legal system, news reporting, education, and policy implementation have all become tools for the CCP to exercise violence and to deceive the people. Under the influence of Confucianism, 
Chinese people have traditionally valued benevolence and righteousness, using propriety to persuade people instead of resorting to punishment and regulation, in which case lawsuits will disappear. To explain this, instead of building a perfect legal system, if we educate people with moral principles, people would be peaceful and nobody would need to engage in lawsuits. Of course, when people cannot reach high enough moral standards, laws must be made to suppress wrongful behavior and to maintain social order. The ancient Chinese saw laws as the lowest standards of moral maintenance. Since criminal laws deal with people of no virtue rather than good people of moral adherence. Now that we have laws, all people should abide by them without deviation, regardless of whether they are officials or regular citizens. On the other hand, if, as the Chinese saying goes, officials can set a fire while commoners are not even allowed to light a candle, or in other words, if the officials themselves take the lead in breaking the law, then how can they continue to use the name of law to rule over the people? Under CCP control, the Chinese legal system has become its tool. Those in power make the law, but break it themselves. In implementing the law, the CCP officials only cleanse those holding opinions that differ from their own. They indulge themselves, playing with the law, instead of using it to discipline themselves. The law has become a stick used by the CCP to punish the people and the dissidents. This is in violation of heaven and humanity. Pretending to be righteous, the CCP legal regulations are, in fact, used to control the good people while protecting corrupt officials. Lies and slander published in the newspapers and broadcast on television have greatly assisted the execution of the CCP's policies in all past political movements. The media instantly execute the party's commands. When the party wanted to start the anti-rightist movement, for example, media all over China reported the so-called crimes of the rightists. When the party wanted to set up the people's communes, every newspaper in the nation immediately started to praise the superiority of people's communes. When the party said the 1989 student protest was a riot, Media all over China insisted that suppressing the protest with guns was the correct path. Within the first month of the persecution of Falun Gong, television and radio stations slandered Falun Gong repeatedly in their primetime broadcasting in order to brainwash the people. Since then, all media have repeatedly fabricated and spread lies about Falun Gong. This includes the effort to incite nationwide hatred against Falun Gong by reporting false news blaming Falun Gong practitioners with murder and suicide. In the past five years, no mainland Chinese newspaper or TV station has reported the true situation about Falun Gong. Chinese people have become used to the false news reports. A senior reporter from Xinhua News Agency once said, How could you trust a Xinhua report? 
People have even described Chinese news agencies as the party's dog. A Chinese folk song about the media goes, It is a dog raised by the party, guarding the party's gate. It bites anyone the party wants it to bite, and bites however many times the party wants it to. The original purpose of education was to develop intellectuals so that they would have both knowledge and good judgment. Knowledge refers to the understanding of information and data from historical and current events. Judgment refers to the process of analyzing, investigating, critiquing, and reproducing such knowledge, which is in fact a process of spiritual development. Those who have knowledge without proper judgment might be called bookworms, not true intellectuals with a social conscience. This is why in Chinese history it is the intellectuals with righteous judgment, not those having merely knowledge, who have been highly respected. Under CCP control, however, China is filled with intellectuals who have knowledge, but not judgment, as well as those who dare not exercise judgment. Education in China's schools focuses on teaching students not to do things that the party does not want them to do. Under CCP rule, all schools have to teach politics and CCP history using standardized textbooks. The teachers do not believe the content of the textbooks, yet they are forced by the party to teach it against their wills. The students do not believe the textbooks or their teachers, yet they have to remember everything in the textbooks in order to pass the exams. Recently, questions about Falun Gong were included in term and entrance exams for colleges and high schools. Students who do not know the party's standard answers do not get scores high enough to enter good schools. If a student dares to speak the truth, he will be expelled from school immediately and lose any chance of formal education. In the public education system, due to the influence of the newspapers and government policies, many sayings or phrases have been spread as the truth and have become well known to all Chinese. One example is the following of Mao's quotations. We should support whatever the enemy opposes and oppose whatever the enemy supports. The negative effect is widespread. It has poisoned people's hearts, supplanting benevolence and destroying the moral principle of living in peace and harmony. In 2004, the China Information Center analyzed a study done by Sinanet, a major Chinese-language internet portal, and the results showed that nearly 85% of Chinese youths agreed that one is allowed to abuse women, children, and prisoners during a war. This is shocking, but it reflects the Chinese people's mindset especially that of the younger generation, who lack a basic understanding of the traditional concept of benevolent rule and the notion of universal humanity. On September 11, 2004, a man went on a rampage and fanatically stabbed 28 children with a knife in Suzhou City. On the 20th of the same month, a man in Shandong province injured 25 elementary school students with a knife. These killings have been molded from the same violence that has formed the CCP.
The CCP leaders have often used threats and coercion to ensure the implementation of their policies. One of the means they used was the political slogan. For a long time, the CCP used the number of slogans posted as a criterion to assess a cadre's political achievements. During the Cultural Revolution, Beijing became a sea of red posters overnight, with the slogan, Down with the ruling capitalists in the party, everywhere. In the countryside, by accident, the rural cadres shortened the signs to read, Down with the ruling party. To promote its forest law, the State Bureau of Forestry and all its stations and forest protection offices strictly ordered a standard number of slogans to be put out. Not reaching the quota would be treated as not accomplishing the task. In the administration of birth control, there have been even scarier slogans such as, If one person violates the law, the whole village will be sterilized. Another, Rather another tomb than another baby. Or, If she didn't have an abortion as she should, her house will be torn down. If she didn't have an abortion as she should, her cows and rice fields will be confiscated. There were more slogans that violate human rights and the Constitution, such as, You will sleep in prison tomorrow if you don't pay your taxes today. A slogan is essentially a means to spread messages, but in a very direct and repetitive manner. Hence, the Chinese government uses slogans to promote its political intent, will, and propositions. Political slogans can also be viewed as the government speaking directly to the people. However, in the CCP's policy-promoting slogans, it is not hard for one to smell the air of violence and cruelty. The most effective weapon the CCP uses to maintain its tyrannical rule is its network of control. In a well-organized fashion, the CCP imposes a mentality of obedience on every one of its citizens. Whether the party contradicts itself or constantly changes policies doesn't matter, so long as it can use organizational means to deprive people of their naturally endowed human rights. The government's tentacles are omnipresent, whether it is in rural or urban areas, the so-called street or township committees govern the citizens. Until recently, getting married or divorced, even having a child, all needed the approval of these committees. The party's ideology, way of thinking, organizational methods, social structure, propaganda mechanisms, and administrative systems serve only the CCP's dictatorial purposes. The party, through the mechanisms of government, strives to control every individual's thoughts and actions. The brutality with which the CCP controls its people is not limited to the physical torture it inflicts. The party also forces people to lose their ability to think independently and makes them into fearful, self-protective cowards daring not to speak up. The goal of the CCP's rule is to brainwash each of its citizens so that they think, act, and talk like the CCP and do what it promotes. There is a saying that 
Party policy is like the moon. It changes every 15 days. No matter how the party changes its policies, everyone in the nation needs to follow them closely. When you are used as a means of attacking others, you need to thank the party for appreciating your strength. When you are attacked, you have to thank the party for teaching you a lesson. When you are wrongfully discriminated against and the party later needs to give you redress, you have to thank the party for being generous, open-minded, and able to correct its mistakes. The party runs its tyranny through continuous cycles of suppression, followed by redress. After 55 years of tyranny, the CCP has imprisoned the nation's mind and constrained it within the range allowed by the CCP. For someone to think outside this boundary is considered a crime. After repeated struggles, stupidity is praised as wisdom. Being a coward is the way to survive. In a modern society with the Internet as the mainstream of information exchange, the CCP even asks its people to exercise self-discipline and not read news from outside or log on to websites with key words like human rights and democracy. Speaking of the CCP tyranny, people are reminded of the endless movements, such as the land reform, suppression of counter-revolutionaries, the three anti- and five anti-campaigns, the anti-rightist and anti-right-leaning campaigns, the four cleanups, the cultural revolution, and so on. In reality, as China is possessed by the communist evil specter, tyranny and persecution are not limited to political movements, but have permeated every day of every period since the CCP came to power. It is only that during political movements, the persecution is more conspicuous. During the 55 years of the CCP rule, persecution has become part of the system, even using terror as a means of control now and again. This tyranny, often exercised under such abstract and lofty ideals as communism and national development, easily misleads people into making wrong conclusions. In comparison with the outrageous emperors of the past, whose extreme corruption and self-indulgence led commoners to suffer, the Communist Party can be defended, no matter how egregious its crimes are, as they come from ideals rather than material greed. Little do people realize that tyranny led by ideals is the cruelest tyranny of all. Using its philosophy of struggle, to eliminate dissidents and enslave human hearts in order to establish its status as the one and only religion under heaven. The CCP has made itself into the world's cruelest despot. Understanding this, we can thoroughly recognize the CCP tyranny. In Chinese history, Every benevolent leader viewed loving, nourishing, and educating the people as the duties of government. Human nature aspires to kindness, and the government's role is to bring about this innate human capacity. Mencius, who followed Confucius, said, This is the way of the people. 
Those with constant means of support will have constant hearts, while those without constant means will not have constant hearts. Education without prosperity has been ineffective. The tyrannical leaders who have had no love for the people, but who have killed the innocent, have been despised by the Chinese people. In the 5,000 years of Chinese history, there have been many benevolent leaders, such as Emperor Yao and Emperor Shun in ancient times, Emperor Wen and Emperor Wu of the Zhou Dynasty, Emperor Wen and Emperor Jing in the Han Dynasty, Emperor Tang Taizong in the Tang Dynasty, Emperor Kang Shi and Emperor Qianlong in the Qing Dynasty. The prosperity enjoyed in these dynasties was all a result of the leaders practicing the Heavenly Tao, following the doctrine of the mean, and striving for peace and stability. The characteristics of a kind leader are to make use of virtuous and capable people, to be open to different opinions, to promote justice and peace, and to give the people what they need. This way, citizens will obey the laws, maintain a sense of decorum, live happily, and work efficiently. Looking at world affairs, we often ask who determines whether a state will prosper or disappear, even though we know that the rise and fall of a nation has its reasons. With the Chinese culture's profound tradition and Chinese people's diligence and wisdom, we will surely see peace and prosperity returning to the Chinese land when China frees itself from the CCP's tyrannical control.